So our text this morning is from Revelation 21, um, and this is the stuff, man, I've been waiting all year for. This is the really fun stuff of Revelation. This is the, the part where it seems like we've been kind of hashing over the same thing all year. Well, we were, <laughs> because there's three sevenfold visions of what's going to be happening on earth until Jesus' return. And so we've been going through that. But now this is Jesus has returned, judgment has happened What's it going to be like when he comes back? So that's why this is so exciting in my opinion. So this is Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. <clears throat> then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, gate, th on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 1,200 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopress, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the gates were twelve pearls, each one of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Whew, this is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is some of my favorite stuff to preach on. Dan and I chat a little bit before the service on this because for some reason, I don't think this gets the airtime in Christian churches, Lutheran or otherwise, around the world, and that is this simple truth. The resurrection is better than heaven. Changed my mind. You've seen those memes online? Changed my mind. The resurrection is better than heaven. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time, and you're, you're thinking, is, is Pastor Luke like dissing on heaven? Is, is, he, is he disparaging heaven? Not at all. 
Heaven is an amazing place, right? And I'm, I'm sure that any one of us will be ecstatic when we die and we, we go to heaven. Your loved ones who have gone before you in faith in Christ right now are, are with the Lord in spirit. Their spirit is there. That's great. And there is a certain amount of comfort and joy. And it's, I mean, it's a lot of certain amount of comfort and joy in that. But there's so much more comfort and joy in the resurrection. See, the scripture talks about the resurrection actually far more than it talks about what heaven is like. The the scriptures focus on the resurrection. Jesus died and was raised from the dead, and we have a glimpse of what it's like to have a resurrected body. What does he do? He goes around, he talks to people, he eats with people, he shares time with people in a physical body. That's that is what our resurrection is going to be like in physical bodies. We confess this all the time in our creeds. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But for some reason, and I, I like to think it's probably Hallmark or, or whatever, Disney and, and those, those media companies oftentimes just show it as dying and going to heaven. That's true. But just don't stop there with your hope and your joy. Because what do you gain at the resurrection? What, what advantage does the resurrection have over heaven? Well, at the resurrection, with these physical bodies, we'll embrace one another. That's, that's the one, one thing that I think hits everybody is if you have a loved one that you cherished in your life and has passed away and then one day you pass away and you see them in heaven, you don't have a physical body. I don't know what it's like in heaven if, if people are meeting up and, and chit-chatting as, you know, Casper the friendly Christian or you know, whatever, that, whatever that is like and having a, a conversation. But I know what they're not doing. I know that they're not giving big hugs and high fives because and, they don't have a physical body. So again, great joy, <laughs> wonderful peace to be had that they are kept squirreled away with the Lord safe until that day. There's, there's no uncertainty about it. There's, there's no, I wonder where my loved one is. Your loved one who's gone before you is with Jesus. There's, there's zero question about it. But with Jesus at the resurrection, that's the great part. And if they're with him now, they will be with him at the resurrection. If they're there now with Jesus, they will be there at the resurrection. And you too at the resurrection, meeting that, that, that husband, the wife, the father, the mother, the grandparent, whomever it is, with joy in your eyes, come up and just give a great big bear hug and feel that. Because you squeeze really hard and they kind of catch their breath, like, oh, it's a little too much. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's great. I can't wait for that moment. The resurrection means everything. As, as Dan was saying earlier, without the resurrection, our hope is sort of limited and there's a little bit of uncertainty to it. Had Jesus not raised from the dead, the disciples becoming apostles would look and be like, I think that worked, <laughs> right? I mean, he did walk on water and do the other cool things, and then he died, and like, it, it, it's probably, probably worked, right? But if he's raised from the dead, 
And they're, they're not hallucinating it because they're poking him with fingers and doubting Thomas isn't sure until he actually can touch him. And they sit and they eat with him. They go, no, that definitely worked. That, that whole thing about the, the sins of the world being placed on Jesus and his death paying for those sins, it must have worked because he's raised from the dead. See, if it didn't work, he'd have died just like anybody else. And what benefit is that? If, if someone just dies like anybody else, what, what hope and joy is there if somebody just dies? No, this is death and then resurrection. So it's, it is crucial to, to focus our attention on what it's going to be like because after whatever amount of time Jesus returns and the heavens and the earth that are currently existing pass away, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the question that's on everybody's mind, and, and I hear it all of the time, is what's that going to be like? What's that going to be like at the resurrection? I don't know everything, but I, I know what Scripture says and what we just read. Now, there's a lot of symbolic language in here. I'll, I'll be the first one to say that. We know that, that some of the language is symbolic, and I'll get to that. But all of the, the language that is symbolic all points to the same thing. It's going to be amazing. And we can actually say a couple of things specifically. First, what we can say is, it is secure. This is Revelation 21, verse 15. Turn a page here. And the one who spoke with me, this is an angel, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. It seems like an odd bit in this vision that, that John is getting that they're going to measure, and it's 1,200 stadia. That's going to take a long time to be measuring. But, but what the point of that language is, is to assure that it's real. It is a concrete thing. That's, that's why there is this very real measuring. And if you want to know why we know that, you can go back to um, Ezekiel and some of the Old Testament prophecies about the new Jerusalem and new temple that mirror the same vision that John is having. There was also a measuring of the temple to make sure everybody understood the temple will be rebuilt and it will be a real temple. Not like a spiritual temple where, you know, we all get together and there's a spiritual... No, there's a real temple. And sure enough, the temple was rebuilt. That's the temple that Jesus interacts with. That's actually not the original temple from King David's time and Solomon. No, this is the, this is the new temple that was rebuilt after that one was destroyed. So there will be a real physical place that we all exist, and it will be secure. It's not going anywhere. Remember, it's got angels watching over it, but the thing about it is there's so many gates. <laughs> now, the text tells us that those gates are really about the 12 tribes of Israel. It's telling us all of those people who believed in the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament, whoop, they're in. And it's built on the foundation of the 12 apostles, telling us that the apostolic teaching that we find in the New Testament is a foundation, meaning the, those who believe in what the apostles teach about who Jesus is, we're all in. And, and we know it's secure because 12 gates with, with doors always open is dumb. 
<laughs> if you're building a wall and you're keeping your city safe from all of the evil on the outside, you only want one gate. Two at the most, but one is better. Why? That's your weak point. That's where the enemy is going to be hitting it with a battering ram. That's how they're going to try and get in through that weak point. But they're saying at the, what John is seeing is at the resurrection, there's, there's nothing to keep out. There's no evil. There's no enemy. There's no predator. There's no one seeking to kill, destroy, or harm those who are in the kingdom. It's very secure. The other thing the text is telling us is that it is very big. <laughs> very, very, very big. And listen to this. So this is uh, 21 verse 16. Yep, that's the correct verse. 21 16 says, the city lies four square, meaning it's four, not, not the wall, this is the city. The, the city lies four square. Its length, same as its width, and the same as its height. It's just a, a square. And it is 1,200 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. 1,200 stadia is 1,380 miles. This is symbolic. What that means is really, 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 really big. <laughs> we also know it's symbolic simply because <clears throat> if it's 1,300 miles tall, you're in space. <laughs> right? the, the International Space Station is 250 miles up. Imagine have the penthouse suite in that tallest building, right? It'd be kind of fun. But we assume that the, the new heavens and the new earth function just sort of logistically very similarly to the current one in terms of like gravity and atmosphere and all of those things. The point of the text is to say that it is really, really big. And by the way, there's this common theme throughout the Old Testament of where God is, that holy place in the temple is square. This is about the presence of God. So hopefully you're seeing, yeah, okay, I get it. There's, there's a lot of symbolism in this. Is it going to be a very literal floating city that's gigantic and sets down? No. I, how does it arrive? How does it, I, we just don't know these things partially because we don't have a frame of reference for it. You know, I talked a couple of weeks ago about um, my wife in labor, and I always am careful, ladies. I know I don't get it, what it's like to have a baby. And the reason I say that is because I have no frame of reference for it. We can't really understand what somebody is going through without any frame of reference for it. And I'm here to tell you that's the difference between heaven and the new creation, the new earth. I don't have a frame of reference for you for what it's like to die and go to heaven. I've, my spirit has never left my body. I've never been disembodied. I've, I've never spent time away from this physical form, this, this meat wagon that, that carries my spirit around, and I never was intended to. And that's the, the, great, the great cost of sin. It's the great divorce that happens to us all. That this body of ours, though it is, you know, a wonderful body created and designed by God, this, this body is, is, is an amazing piece of, of engineering that God creates from a, on a cellular level all the way to the, the most basic motor function. It's amazing what God has done to create our bodies, but it's not perfect. 
This body is, is not perfect, as much as my wife tells me it is. I have a microphone, she doesn't, so I, uh... <laughs> right? It's not perfect. It breks down. I got a bum knee right now. I've, I've got bad shoulders. I've said it over and over in here that this, this body is broken, and, and, I'm, and I'm sort of housed in this body of flesh I've never been anywhere else. It's, it's not as though it's a, a cocoon or just a jar and I've got this perfect spirit in me. No, my spirit has a similar problem of not being perfect. Who I am is not perfect, but at death, I'm pulled apart and my spirit resides with God, having been made perfect through the death of Jesus. My body goes in the ground, not yet perfected. But at the resurrection, that perfect body is risen from the dead, spirit reunited with that perfect physical body. And I can tell you from a frame of reference what that might be like just by looking and feeling my current body. I know what knee pain feels like. And I know that without it, I'd have a much better day every day. I know what back pain is like. I know what headaches are like. I know what all of these things are like. And I know how wonderful it would be to be without them. And that's, that's what we can hold on to because we have that frame of reference. This is why that hope is easier to get a hold of because we know what that would be like. Even if we've never felt perfect in our bodies, even if we've never felt right in our bodies, even if we've never felt like we're in the right body, it doesn't matter because at the resurrection, for sure, for sure we will have this perfect body with a perfect spirit and a perfect mind and a perfect heart all brought together perfectly for eternity. This is what we're looking forward to. This is why it is such a joy for these Sundays as Dan started the service this morning with he is risen and we all cheer together. He is risen indeed because if he is risen, we too shall be raised because we were buried with him in baptism. So then we will be raised with him on that last day. These things are connected. God has in Christ melded us together. God has in Jesus bonded us with him so that we become like him in the resurrection. Meaning able to touch and eat and share conversations and laugh with others. This is what we're looking forward to. So again, I'm not saying anything ugly about heaven. Heaven's cool. Heaven's going to be great. Heaven's going to be wonderful. But the resurrection is where it's at. The resurrection is what is truly wonderful. Now I know it sounds fantastical. It sounds amazing. It sounds almost too good to be true like I preached last week, but it, it sounds incomprehensible even, and I get it, because it does. But so does the fact that he put it all together the first time, that he created heavens and earth the first time. And if he's able to do that, then he is able to do this. So, of course, the last question I know is on everybody's mind is, who's there? It's a good question. The question, of course, is easily found in Revelation 21, 17, but it's also easily misunderstood. Not 17, 27, sorry. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, 
nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's easy to to misconstrue what this is saying because as you read it, you might say, well, I've done a few things that are, are a little detestable, right? I've done some stuff that is false, I've done some things that are untrue. Does that mean my name isn't written in the book? You're misunderstanding when you read it that way, though in that English construction of the sentence, it makes perfect sense to read it that way. That's not how it is written. What it is saying is that those who are doing those detestable things, me and you, those people who are doing things that are false, me and you, those people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's us, right, have to have that dealt with so we are no longer those things and have our names written in the book of life. And in fact, if you go backwards in that sentence, those whose names are written in the book of life have nothing about them that is sinful, detestable, or false. It seems like it's, that would be too good to be true. It seems impossible for me to cleanse my life of those things, and that's the point of the entire story of Christianity. That's the, the point of the entire story of the Bible. From Genesis all the way through, it is God must come to clean. God must come to rescue. God must come to change me. God must come to rescue me because I can't do it because I have this body of sinful flesh. I have this spirit that is rebellious that does these things that are detestable. I need somebody to intervene for me. But no one on earth is able to do it because they're all like me. They too are sinful, detestable, false sinners. So God sends his son to do that for us. But that doesn't mean he comes and he says, all right, I'm going to show you how to clean your life up. That's not what he does. He doesn't come to you and go, all right, you are sinful, which means you're detestable, which means you're rebellious. You're all of these things. Now, if you just follow these steps... (laughs) to better improve your life and act like a Christian. No. He takes what is sinful, detestable, and false about you and puts it on himself. And then he deals with it. He puts it on himself and he deals with it on the cross. And then he is raised up. Your name just needs to be in the book of the Lamb. It's that simple. But it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it is insignificant. It means the death of our Savior. Incredibly significant. All it is is faith in him. Trust in Jesus, faith in Jesus, and everything about you that isn't right from the moment you were born with your imperfections, from the moment you were born with things wrong with you, some great and some small, the moment you were born, all of that is placed on the cross of Jesus, and then you are raised up on that last day without it. And and it's not that he's keeping people out of the kingdom like you and me who have sinned, but rather he is bringing into the kingdom so many people 
that, that he needs 12 gates to get them all in. He's bringing in so many people whose lives on earth in these sinful bodies were a wreck, whose lives on earth with this sinful, rebellious spirit was constantly doing things and saying things and hurting people. He's bringing those people in, people who feel as though they, that their body isn't the right body, people who feel as though their mind is broken because it is, He's bringing them into the kingdom, not because they fixed themselves up, not because they got their stuff together, not because they finally ordered their life, but despite of the fact that they never could, to the very last breath they took, in spite of the fact that I will never get my life fully together, that I will never get to that spot where I'm not saying something mean and cruel on purpose to someone in a moment, despite the fact that I'll fail as, as, a, as a father, as a husband, and a pastor, to my last breath, I will make mistakes I should know better. And despite all of that, he raises me from the dead on that last day completely clean of sin. And he just simply looks and goes, yeah, there's your name right there. Yep, written in. Come on in. Each and every one of us. This is why we fix our eyes on the cross and the resurrection. Heaven is, an, is a nice thing right in the middle there, <laughs> somewhere in between. It's wonderful, but don't put your eyes just on heaven. Put your eyes on the empty tomb. Let us fix our hearts and minds, of course, on the cross of Jesus, on, on the action that, that results in us being cleansed of all of our sins. But not our hope in eternal heavenly bliss, but in resurrected bliss. That time in between the cross and his empty tomb, we don't know a ton about. But man, do we know what that resurrection is like. We know what that gift is like. We know what that certainty is like. He certainly came out of that tomb. And he certainly met with the disciples. And there are countless witnesses who saw him face to face. Over 500, the scriptures say. There are people who touched him and ate with him and heard him speak. We know what that resurrection is like. Thanks be to God that our faith in Jesus lets us know what our resurrection is will be like. We know that we will be raised from the dead because he is risen. Amen. Oh, See, I can't let you have all of them. It's just not how it's going to work. All right, we're going to go ahead and say a prayer while kiddos are brought back in from uh, the children's church that they went on, if you would join me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the resurrection, the hope and the promise that we have in that resurrection, the certainty that surrounds that resurrection. We know that heaven being a spiritual place has some uncertainty to it, but we trust that it is glorious and wonderful and fantastic, whatever it might be like. But I pray, Lord, that you would anchor us in that hope of a new heavens and a new earth and that you would clear uncertainty from our minds because if you indeed created this place, you can do it again. And you have indeed cleansed us from sin. So I thank you, Lord, for this great, joyful proclamation of the resurrection of your son, 
that it would be in my heart and the hearts of those gathered here today each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.